You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Shaw, and this will be the commentary on the books 9 and 10, the last two books of Aristotle's Ethics. We will have one more uh, lecture, talk, on Aristotle's politics, but that is just briefly and is not intended to cover the whole book. Here we want to continue with the last two books of Aristotle's Ethics. You remember I said in the beginning that books 1 and book 10 are related to each other in the sense that they both discuss in general and in book 10 more precisely what you mean ultimately by human happiness. In book 10, Aristotle will say in the middle chapters, chapters uh, 6, 7, and 8, that happiness consists in the activity of the highest faculty that we have on the highest object in reality. That sounds like a abstract definition, and it is in a way, but it is a very concrete thing. <clears throat> Happiness is actually the beholding or the knowing of the truth in its ultimate sense, in its completeness, insofar as that is possible to human reason and to human powers. Book 9, however, as we said, and Book 8 belong together. They are both the Aristotle's great treatises on friendship. This is, in some sense, a masterpiece in its own uh, right, as we've seen. Aristotle says that, of course, the ethical life among us in this world is perfected by friendship. We are to be just with one another. We are to control our passions. We are to be fair. We are to be generous. <clears throat> but basically, what we want is to find friends who share with us the ultimate things in a complete life, as he will say. So the final comment on the ethics will be about books 9 and 10. 9 completes Aristotle's discussion, as we said, on friendship, and book 10 begins with a further discussion of pleasure. So remember we said book 7, at the end of book 7 and book 10, is a discussion of Aristotle on pleasure. Remember, the four general topics that he deals with are pleasure, happiness, virtue, and um, friendship. The middle section, as I said, of Book 10 is probably the most important section of the whole work, and it's extremely a central uh, guiding principle in all of Aristotle. Is directly related to the theoretical virtues mentioned in Book 6 and the final end of uh, the section in Book 1 about the ultimate definition of happiness being found in the activity of the highest faculty on the highest object. Remember, in Book 1, the highest end, happiness, eudaimonia in Greek, usually translates as happiness. And it is defined as, in the Hockett edition, as study, which is not a particularly good translation. It is better, as I said, translated by contemplation. 
of the knowing of things for their own sake and not just for something else for pleasure or for use the final section of book 10 is aristotle's transition to the book of the, his book of the politics the politics includes the discussion of the domestic rule and the civic rule that is say of the household and of the city or the polis we will have one talk, the one following this, devoted to the uh, politics of Aristotle. One, of course, is not enough, and in general, there is never enough of Aristotle. Aristotle had said in Book One that man is by nature a political animal. What does this mean? You will hear it said again and again. Basically, it means that we cannot acquire all of the virtues and none of them well without others being present and acting through others and this in an organized fashion that is in an ordered orderly world a world of exchange with one another the forces of disorder are everywhere present as aristotle realizes in chaos it is much more difficult, if not impossible, to be virtuous. We can always be virtuous, as I mentioned before, in the worst regimes, but it is very difficult. Aristotle thinks that the city would be necessary to establish even if men were all perfect. So the state is going to be present even without the fall or without original sin in Christian terms. He does not think that most states are perfect. Recall Book 7. I would say he recalls that uh, none of us are completely perfect in the cities in which we live. But he does not root the existence of the state only in disorder and the disorder of personal life, the lack of virtue, in other words. We will see more of this reasoning uh, about how to consider this question of man's natural understanding of himself in the Simon book. But for now, understand that the transition to the politics at the end of book 10 is not rooted in perfection. So there are two elements of Aristotle. One, man is by nature a social animal, but two, since he is not, living perfectly, there's also an understanding of the need of politics from disorder. So he's ordered from imperfection in, one, in this sense, that something must be done about crimes and inefficiencies. We had noticed in Book 3 that one of the reasons for uh, lessening our responsibility was force. Often law and politics are identified with or associated with force, with police, army, or courts. Aristotle does not think that force used reasonably is bad. Indeed, he thinks it is, it is good to do that. But if it has to be used by a good citizen or by law to co coerce the disorderly, as often is necessary. Legitimate coercion is still directed 
to virtue, to prevent a bad act, and to encourage a good one indirectly. It is intended to restore goods and to help to reform people so that they won't need coercion. All need of civil coercion becomes necessary because of personal disorders in one or another or many individual souls. That is, someone or someones failed to acquire virtue sufficient to rule themselves in the public order or in the family. This is why justice almost always has a coercive question lurking behind it. That is, as we said, army, police, and the courts. But let us go back to Book 8 and Book 9. This great tractate on friendship is designed to minimize the need or coercion, while at the same time pointing to things beyond politics. In Book 9, Aristotle explains why friends uh, have disputes, why they fall apart. He wants to know why friendships fail. And this is an important reflection, something that occurs in everyone's life, too, and we wonder about it. He says, quote, in 1164, 8.15, for when someone does not get what he aims at in his friendship, it is like getting nothing, the end of the quote. We need thus to be sure that we know the basis, that is, is the utility or pleasure or the highest thing, of a friendship we deal with. Remember, the knowledge of this basic friendship is what we seek to know or come to know of another. We want to know what kind of friend that he intends to be, what kind of friend do I intend to be. He says in 1164b, 1-6, he says the highest friendship, the highest friendships reflect the exchange of the activities of the highest virtues, the end of the quote. So they want to know the truth, what is really valid. Remember, friendship is not merely mutual, but it is chosen for that reason. That is to say, for the reason of the good that the other pursues and stands for. It is mutual, so reciprocity is essential to friendship and makes it, as we saw, different uh, from just benevolence. We cannot always know what is exactly what is to be returned. We do the best we can. And then he says, and he adds in 1165a24, to 28, he says, and we should accord honor to our parents just as we do to the gods, because not every sort of honor is due to them. For we should not accord the same honor to father and to mother, nor accord them the honor due to a wise person or to a general. We should accord them honor due to the father 
uh, as a father, and likewise to a mother uh, as a mother. The end of the quote. So therefore, there is a specific and peculiar form of honor that we owe to our parents, that we give to our parents, in terms of praise for what they have done to us. This is called the Latin virtue of piety, fiatas. That is to say, we want to return to our parents the good that they have done to us, but you can never do the particular thing, so you have to return to them what is due, what is honor. However, we might accuse a friend, uh, he says in 1165b5-8, however, we might accuse a friend if he really likes us for utility or pleasure and pretended to like us for our character, our virtue, our highest thing. So we might accuse him uh, of, being, of being not what we were looking for. For friends are most at odds when they are not friends in the way they think they are. If you think about this, this is the cause of very, very many controversies among friends. I suspect this will be the major problem that college students, among others, during their younger years will have with this noble issue of friendship. And it is not a new problem in our generation, but recurs again and again since the discussion the reality of friendship is part of what you mean by human nature. And Aristotle says in 1165, B12-17, he says, But if we accept a friend as a good person, and then he becomes vicious or a bad person, and seems to be a bad person, should we still love him in the same way? Surely we cannot. If not everything, uh, but only of what is good and is lovable. So you can't love everything but only what is good. What is bad is not lovable and must not be loved. For we ought neither to love what is bad nor to become similar to a bad person. And we have said similar things are friends to similar things. So if we are friends with someone because he is a bad person, because we are a bad person, then both of us are indeed bad. And that is possible. And Aristotle says in 1166a5-329, he says, for a friend is taken to be, first, someone who wishes and does goods or apparent goods to his friends for the sake of a friend. So the friend does something for the other, not for his sake, but for the sake of the friend. Or he says a friend is one who wishes the friend to be and to live for the sake of his friend. So there is a certain communion that friendship produces. This is how mothers, he says, feel towards their children and how friends who have been in conflict feel to battle, in other words, feel towards one another. Others take a friend to be one who spends his time 
with his friend. So that's the great doctrine of only the time that you waste with your friends is important. The time that you don't have to be there with them, but you just are. And fourth, he says, your friend makes the same choices. We have the same agreement about ultimate things. And fifthly, he says, one, a friend is one who shares his friend's distresses and enjoyments. And this, too, is true, especially of mothers, Aristotle says. And people define friendship by one of these features. So that's what is the basis of our friendship, he says. But we should pay attention to all these things, especially what he says, at 1166A13 and following. The word concord is used in Aristotle to describe a friendly or peaceful city where citizens are, in a general sense, friends, but of utility or of good feelings. That is to say, you can't be friends with everybody in a given city. But you can have a certain goodwill towards them, which he calls concord. Rather, a city is said to be in concord when its citizens agree about what is advantageous, make the same decisions, and act on their common conclusions. He says that in 1167a, 27 to 29. Lack of this concord will, of course, lead to undermining the city. Benevolence, which is another thing. So there's a difference between friendship and benevolence. In friendship, there is reciprocity. In benevolence, I simply will the good of the others without and necessarily any return. So he says in 1168a4, he says, Benevolence, which means in Latin, bene volens, willing the good, is not the same as friendship. Thus, we wish well to others, even if they are not our friends. So just because someone isn't my friend doesn't mean I can't wish well to him. And uh, in doing that, I am uh, encouraging them and I'm recognizing the good in them, but there is no real reciprocity. And then he says in 1168.25 to 26, he says, This is also why mothers love their children more than fathers. This is a very interesting passage. While mothers love their children more than fathers do, since giving birth is more effort for them, he says, and they know better that the children are theirs. I say, you might ponder this very offhand statement of Aristotle. The mothers are sure, are more sure at least who their fathers are, unless you're dealing with some kind of in vitro anonymous donors in some sense in, modern, in the modern world. But the Aristotle's point was that, that mothers, in a certain sense, know, or the father, in one sense, has to wait until the child is born is born to see, to be sure to see what it looks like him. And indeed, fathers are not directly involved in the, in the labor pains of the, of the mother. 
So the mother's, in that sense, is more attached, she says, she says to the children. So therefore, he says, court 1169A9 to 8 to 9, he says, those who are unusually eager to do fine things are welcomed and praised by everyone. So someone who does uh, good things and to others is always welcome to others. A very human insight in ourselves. A classical problem arises about the love of country or family and the virtue of courage, the dying for a purpose that is noble. Why is this all right? Great question. And Aristotle says in 1169a 18 to 25, he says, besides, it is true that the excellent person labors for his friends and for his native country and will die for them if he must. He will sacrifice money, honors, and contested goods in general in achieving what is fine for himself. For he will choose intense pleasure for a short time, even over mild pleasures for a longer period of time. A year of living finely over many, uh, he chooses over many years of undistinguished life, and a single fine and great action over many small actions. The end of the quote. What Aristotle means then is someone who dies for a worthy cause sums up his life in that dying, and therefore he is, in that sense, rendered to be permanently good. Then he says in 1169b18, a very interesting passage. He says, for no one would choose to live or to have all other goods and yet be alone. Great passage. Since a human being is a political uh, being, tending by nature, to live together with others. So no one would simply want to live a totally isolated life, he says. And this is one of the texts about man as a political animal that Aristotle has. Interestingly, it is put in the context of loneliness. Aristotle worries about God in the same way. He worries that God is lonely. And it becomes an argument for living in the city where we can uh, be with others in conversation about the highest things and put together and do the regular and normal things that need to be done. Basically, Aristotle thinks that friendship makes us, enables us to exchange all things especially the highest ones, which depend upon one individual person exchanging with one other individual person. Read very carefully what Aristotle says about friendship 
essentials in 1170A15 to B9. And then it comes up the next question, which is a great question also. Can we have many friends? Friends must live together, must exchange together. The seeing or knowing a good person is itself a pleasant and good thing. Quote, he says in 1170, uh, B10-14, he says, He must perceive, then, that the being of his friend, being together with his own, so the friends being together, we must perceive, and he will do this when they live together and share conversations and thought. For in the case of human beings, what seems to count as living together is this sharing of conversation and thought, not sharing the same pleasure as in the case of grazing animals, the end of the quote, which is 1170, beef 10 to 14. It's a profound passage, really, where he says that, as he says so, that human beings uh, need to live together and yet live together in small numbers because they cannot exchange everything with everyone. An illusion. Aristotle thinks the world should be filled then with small polities in which there can be a multiplicity of friends, but not a big polis in which people really do not know each other. So one of the problems of the lonely crowd in the city uh, where people don't really know one another and can't have a chance to do so. Presumably, then, it is, uh, Aristotle said, 1171.10, he says, presumably, it is good not to seek as many friends as possible and good to have no more than enough for living together. Indeed, it even seems impossible to be an extremely close to many people. And so Aristotle is being very practical there. He is saying that, he says in another place, the friends of everybody is a friend of nobody. So friendship requires a certain exclusiveness without which it cannot exist. And indeed, in the highest thing, and this is Aristotle's point about marriage, I suppose, is that it is a real living together and exchanging of the highest things. Remember, Aristotle thinks that we can have many friends, however, of utility and of pleasure uh, in various ways. So the other kind of friendships, and then, of course, we also have to be just, we have to be just with everybody. And we can be friendly towards many people. And we can and we can have more than one friend of this, but more than a few of, of the highest things he doesn't think we can have. And he says in eleven seventy one A fifteen, he says, Friendships celebrated in song are always between two people. Very interesting observation. And he says in eleven seventy one 
I must be um, B29. The very presence of friends is also pleasant. That is to say, it not only is a, a, a good thing, but it's also a pleasure. In ill fortune, as well as in good fortune, it's good to have friends. For we have our pain lightened when our friends share our distress. And indeed, we increase our joy if they, if they share our joy. There follows a passage that I have always loved in this tractate. It is 1171a, 3 to 8, and so on. Let's listen to this. Whatever someone regards as his being or end for which he chooses to live, to be alive, the book one, that is the activity he wishes to pursue in the company of his friends. Hence, some friends drink together, cocktail hour. Others play dice, they go to Atlantic City or Las Vegas. While others do gymnastics, they go to the field house or gold, gold gym. Or they go hunting or fishing. And then he says, or they do philosophy together. Notice how casually Aristotle slips in this last comment. He says, they spend their lives, their days together on whichever pursuit in life they like most. For since they want to live with their friends, they share their actions in which they live in, in the common life. So Aristotle here would say then, if friends want to go hunting together or fishing together, they do that. Now he doesn't think that's the friendship of the highest level, but he thinks it's a genuine friendship of pleasure and delight, and it is a good thing. So we not only should have friendships in the highest sense, we should have all sorts of friendships uh, of utility and of pleasure. But we can't have more than one or two of the highest sense, in the highest sense, he thinks, whereas the, where the exchange is always of the highest thing. In Book 10, then, Aristotle is going to say something like this. He's going to say, for arguments about actions and feelings are less credible than the facts. So that's 1172A35. So, so arguments about actions are less credible than the facts. So it is a good sentence to begin this discussion of pleasure. So that's the subject matter of the beginning of Book 10, as we saw. What we do is more important than our explanation of what we do. Here, Aristotle has a long and incisive discussion of why pleasure cannot be the highest good. This is basically because it is always secondary to the act in which it exists. So, you cannot, except mentally, 
separate the pleasure from the act for which the pleasure exists. Pleasure is not a becoming, he says. It's instantaneous. It is always immediately present to the act that grounds it. And the same thing is true of pain. Then he says in 1173b33, he says, the difference between a friend and a flatterer seems to indicate that pleasure is not the ultimate good. What does this mean? Well, it means that a, a, a flatterer can tell us that we're really good or really uh, uh, handsome or really uh, rich or something like that. Uh, and if we separate his effort to make us feel good instead of his real concern about us, then uh, we will just be flattered and not really be pleased with what is being said. Moreover, there are many things that we would be, Aristotle says in 1174a, 5 to 10, there are many things that we would be eager for even if they brought no pleasure. That is, seeing and remembering and knowing, having the virtue. Even if pleasure necessarily follows on them, uh, they do not matter, since we would choose them even if no pleasure resulted from them. A very interesting passage. So we would choose to be sight, to see, even if we didn't have a delight in seeing. This is both common sense and a remarkable perceptive remarkably perceptive uh, observation. Note, there is a pleasure in seeing, in remembering, in knowing, and in having the virtues. But we would want them even if, they were, if there were no pleasure connected to them. And then he says in 1174b, 1 to 2, 1 to 4, he says, quote, for every faculty of perception, that is, our eyes and our hearing, and every sort of thought and study has its pleasure. Pleasure completes the activity, the end of the quote. Now, this is the subject matter, as I mentioned, of my book, Rational Pleasures, which is the very quote that uh, grounds it. Every faculty of perception and every sort of thought and study has its pleasure. And so experiencing that pleasure in a certain sense reinforces the activity. It completes it. It makes it whole. And then he says that to prove this in a way, he says in 1175 B4, he says, quote, for lovers of flute, cannot pay attention to a conversation if they catch the sound of someone playing the flute. The end of the quote. So he means by that that if you love to do something and that activity occurs, uh, it's hard for you to concentrate on anything else. And he says in 1176, A26 to 28, 
he says, hence the pleasures that complete the activities of the of the complete and blessedly happy man, whether he have one activity or more than one, will be called the human pleasures to the fullest extent. The end of the quote. <clears throat> the pleasures that complete the activities and including the highest activities. Now in chapter 6 of book 10, if you're edition has them also divided into chapters as the Hackett edition does. Aristotle distinguishes between pleasure, recreation, sport, and amusement. Aristotle thinks that sport is akin to contemplation. There's a chapter on this in my book called Another Sort of Learning. All of this is brought out by a great book of Joseph Pieper called Leisure, the Basis of Culture, a book based on Aristotle. Work is what we do to make our world for ourselves so that we can survive, though through craft and art, it is also has its own purposes and good. So we, we can work to make things that are simply beautiful. Work is difficult, usually. Thus, recreation or amusement is the break we take to restore ourselves to go back to work. All of this, however, is directed to leisure, as Aristotle calls it, a translation of the Greek word skole the word from which we get in English, school. So school, or skole, is intended to be an area of our life of activity which is beyond work and beyond necessity. We work ultimately in order that we might have leisure. But we have leisure, or are at leisure, in order to converse to do the highest things. This is the connection between the intellectual virtues of Book 6 and the discussion on happiness in Book 10. Consider this passage. So 1176b, 18 to 23, quote, where virtue and understanding, that is say prudence, the sources of excellent activity do not depend on holding supreme, that is say, political powers. So prudence and virtue, which are the sources of our excellent, do not depend on holding political power. Further, those powerful people who have no taste for pure and civilized pleasures, and so what do they do? They resort to bodily pleasures if they do not experience the higher pleasures. But that is no reason to think these pleasures are most choice-worthy, since boys also think that what they honor is best. So, just because a politician thinks that pleasures are the highest thing, that is, if it 
physical places are the highest, and do not make them that. And very often, if you don't experience any kind of sense of higher pleasure, you will resort to that. So we might ponder this passage. It is about the politicians who have no proper intellectual or cultural life or pleasure. What happens to them? They turn to other kinds of things except that which is their proper good. Aristotle, in the great chapters 7 to 8, comes to the heart of the ethic. What is happiness? Thus, he now, in the light of the whole of the book, reconsiders this question and gives his answer. It is not amusement. It must deal with serious actions. It is not bodily pleasure. Again, he is neither saying these do not exist or that they are not good in their own spheres. In 1177a, 12 to 14, he says, quote, If happiness, then, is activity expressing virtue, it is reasonable for it to express the supreme virtue, which will be the virtue of the best thing, the end of the quote. It is the activity expressing wisdom, or Sophia, as it is in Book 6. Philosophy, as he says in 1177a, 24-27, philosophy seems to have remarkably pure and firm pleasure. So you have a pleasure in philosophizing. And it is reasonable for those who have knowledge to spend their lives more pleasantly than those who seek it. It is better to have knowledge than to seek to have it. But both, you can't have it, of course, unless you initially seek it and pursue it. So happiness, he says, in 1177b5-9, to happiness seems to be found in leisure and scholae, since we accept trouble so that we can be at leisure. So if we have to deal with something, we have to deal with it, but we don't want to continue to do that. And we fight wars so that we can be at peace. Great passage for political science. The end of war is always peace. But it doesn't mean that wars may not be necessary to bring that about. Now, the virtues concerned with action, practical intellect, in other words, have their activities in politics or war. Zarathal continues, and actions here seem to require trouble, uh, difficulty, problems. Basically, this says that politics or war, however necessary or good, are not the highest of the actions of man. Note what is said about political science and the politician. Again, politics is not the highest science, but it is the highest of the practical sciences. That is to say, the sciences 
of ordering our lives in this world, but they themselves in turn are ordered to the highest things, as he says in 1177b20-21, to he says, quote, it is the activity of study, that is of contemplation. In Greek, the word is theorein, uh, the word where we get theory, which is the activity of knowing, that aims at no end beyond itself, a thing that is good for its own sake, and has its own proper pleasure, which increases the activity in the point. So a thing, thinking or knowing the truth, has no activity beyond itself because that's what we want to know and rejoice in. Basically, Aristotle had said at the end of Book 1 that happiness is the activity of the virtues. In Book 10, after surveying the whole scope of ethical life, he is more complete. Happiness is the activity of the highest faculty on the highest object in a complete life. Here Aristotle is talking about the happiness we know as we know it insofar as we are living as mortal beings in this world. There may be, indeed is, a transcendent order also. A complete life means having passed through all the states of life, that is, conception, birth, infancy, adolescence, maturity, old age, and finally death. So each palace is always filled with beings who are passing out of life and into life. Aristotle says that we are, in fact, made for something more than human life. He calls it divine to be among the gods, he said. But he does not here mean we are gods, but that we have an activity similar to the activity of the gods, and that is that of knowing, which is for its own sake, and which, when known, it is unchangeable. That's say we, that when we know things that cannot change, as opposed to things that do change and can change. The life of the gods is thinking, or for the first mover, it is in the famous definition of Aristotle, it is thought thinking itself, a very fertile concept which, as Christians, we think about and break down to, uh, to correspond to our understanding of the Word made flesh, the Word in the Godhead of the Trinity. Thus Aristotle gives some famous advice. In 1177b33 to A78-3, he says, quote, there is very important to listen to this. We ought not to follow the proverb writers and think, human, and think just in human terms or human limits. Since you are human, or think in human terms, just because you are human, or think mortal things, mortal, that is, the beings who will die, since you are mortal, he says. Rather, 
as far as we can. We ought to be pro-mortal, pro-immortal, and go to all lengths to live a life that expresses our supreme, the supreme element. For however much this element may lack in bulk, by much more it surpasses everything in power and in value. This theme will come up again in the Schumacher book. What it means is the normal that the normal life of man, however, is not enough. That is to say, the living and the dying is is not only what we are for. We should strive to know the highest thing, to become immortal, even that is to participate in the things that cannot be otherwise, to know, in other words, to know the truth. There may be no more important passage in political philosophy, in philosophy in general, than this one, as it tells us why, though man is a political animal, he is more than that, and that politics does not and cannot exhaust his interest or being, even though it is a legitimate part of his being, and it prepares him, in some sense, for the life of leisure and contemplation. And then he says in 1179a, 15 to 16, he says, And Anaxagoras, an earlier Greek philosopher, would seem to have supposed that the happy person was neither rich nor powerful, since he said he would not be surprised if the happy person appeared as an absurd sort of person to the many. The end of the quote. This odd saying is that the wise man appears as a fool to the many. We will see more of this when we come to Plato. But the basic sense is that someone who does understand what the highest things are about will not put his uh, time or faith in those things which are good, but which are not central or highest. Uh, see what it says about the gods in 1179a25. In 1179b12, he says, quote, The aim of study, or the aim of contemplation, that is the book of the ethics, about action. I say the book of the ethics is about human action, what we can do, and things that can be otherwise, is surely not to study and know about each thing, but rather to act on our knowledge. Hence, Knowing about virtue is not enough. And, and so therefore, but we must also try to possess and exercise virtue or become good in any other way. So if I know the definition of justice, it doesn't mean I am just. I have to do the act. I have to acquire the virtue to recognize, A, that I should, and B, that I can do it when I occasion arise. 
The purpose of ethical studies is not to know something about ethics, although it may be helpful, so that, and it's a good thing, but it is to act virtuously in a particular life in each circumstance where the acting of virtuous comes up and rejecting to act in a wrong or vicious way. Here is the advice Aristotle gives to the young. He says, argument and teaching surely do not influence everyone, but the soul of the student needs to have been prepared by habits for enjoying and, and hating, uh, finally. So you should hate the bad things, finally, he says. Like ground that is nourished, uh, seeds and, and for cultivation, so you need to prepare for it. For someone whose life is uh, follows his feelings, would not even listen to an argument uh, turning him away from doing whatever he wants, or comprehend it if he did listen. And in that state, how could he be persuaded to change? the end of the quote. A very interesting quote. It therefore, if you are not in control of your virtues and not virtuous, you will not be willing to A, listen to the arguments that you should be, and B, will not be able to do it even if you did. The last third of the ethics is Aristotle's transition to the or to his book of the politics basically what aristotle does is to point out that men gather into cities the men do uh, do so when they have left the household it is in the household where virtues are initially to be learned and lived that is one must have the habits uh, when he leaves out, meaning leaving the household when you're 20, 21, whatever it is within a society. But it often happens that those who leave the household do not have good habits. As a result, we find various kinds of crimes and disorders appearing in the city. So Aristotle begins his transition to the politics by pointing out the necessity we have at times not only of law, but of law with coercion. The father of a family does not have direct coercive power. He can be overwhelmed by rebellious sons. We should note here that Aristotle also thinks we would need a civil authority even if there were no disorder uh, to make reasonable agreements about varying uh, and different ways of, to live together. So we still need a political society, even if everybody were perfect, because we still need to have some kind of an order. We'll see more of that. In the politics, Aristotle will begin to classify the different kinds of, of polities according both to uh, the number of the ruling principle and to the kind of virtue or vice 
seeks to implement and foster in the souls of the citizens. Law for Aristotle, in a famous definition, is simply reason without passion. He means by this that often it is our desires that deflect us from seeing or choosing what we ought to do. So the law is a statement of reason uh, and not anything further than that. It's a norm of our activity. Recall Book 7, where this comes up also. The law is the measure of our actions in seeing or choosing what we ought to do. The law is the measure in public. It sets up the way we deal with one another, both to get along and to prevent disorders. So man is a political animal. This means that he is a reasonable animal who lives with others of his kind. Their relationship ought to be one of reason, not struggle or fighting. So the things they do together, they do because they understand them and conclude that it is reasonable to do so. The latter happens so Aristotle understands that it must be dealt with. That is to say, disorder happens so he understands that it must be dealt with. But Aristotle also means that man cannot be fully what he is just by himself or in a family. The full display of every virtue has a social component uh, for it to flourish. The polity has a good, the common good. This common good is not a thing or another good besides other goods. It is that good of the order that allows all other goods potential to man to come forth and to act be actualized and to flourish. Aristotle is very perceptive and observant in this last part of the book. Remember, ethics as such has to do with the rule of ourselves over ourselves in all those things in us that we find that need to be ruled. And they need to do so not in the abstract, but here and now at the time, place, and proper circumstances. The household has to do with the rule of parents over members of the household. This is the community in which we are born and die and live our daily lives. It has its own spirit and order that is more than justice. A family that is ruled by justice is not really a family. The state or polity is the rule for the common good. The common good, again, is not some esoteric good outside of our reach. Rather, it is the rule of ourselves carried to completion. We can, do, uh, we can do much more when not everybody does everything. We can, so if you try to do everything all the time, you will not, and everybody has to do the same thing, to eat and sleep and prepare other things, uh, nobody will get anything done. We can then exchange and grow because everyone is pursuing his own virtue or craft or genius and doing something else that is hopefully good and useful for others. The polity reflects the virtues or vices 
of its citizens. Aristotle holds that the city is a work of mortal men in this life. It is the display, as it were, of their souls expressed in laws and buildings and works and beauties of various sorts. Man has a higher good than the polis, and this is what the middle part of Book 10 was about. We should strive to those divine things in us. Uh, to do this, we need the city, and we need ourselves to acquire our own virtues. The polity is not some higher being uh, than uh, each human being. Rather, it is the public expression of their relationships to one another and the other polities that exist around them. So this is the end of our discussion of the ethics. As I say, we will have one more discussion on the politics. But what we have tried to do is point out that the ethics is a book in which the whole of our reflection on our lives and what goes on with it in the so far as we deal with what we are responsible for uh, is, is discussed. So the book of the ethics is the book that we wish to read and it is the book that we wish to see the parts or we wish to see how it fits to the whole or we wish to see how it's ordered to the end. Now this book itself is ordered to other books, to the ethics or to the politics and the politics and the ethics and the rhetoric and the other books are themselves ordained to the leisure, to the knowledge of the truth that is found in other Aristotle's works like the metaphysics. So this will end the discussion on the uh, ethics. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.